Well, hello. Uh, great to be with you and great to continue in God's Word together in the book of 1 Samuel. My name is Dom. Um, uh, I, like Jamin, regularly attend Bankstown, so it's really exciting to be here. And it's great to see a bunch of faces that I haven't met before. So uh, it says something about what God is doing in this place. So um, yeah, uh, keep your Bibles open. It's a long chapter. We're going through all of chapter 14. Um, uh, and so yeah, it's, it's quite a story. Now, during high school for several years, we had uh, my cousin from Hong Kong living with us. I loved it. It was suddenly as if my younger brother and I had an extra brother. Now, he moved to Sydney to finish high school in hopes of going to study to become a pilot, uh, which I thought was incredibly cool. Uh, from a very young age, my cousin had dreamed of becoming a pilot. Uh, he was obsessed with all things planes. He had all those models that you would construct as a kid, those classic planes, the fighter planes, commercial planes. He even had a flight simulator in his room uh, attached to his computer so he could practice taking off and landing. Um, he was flying small planes before he got his red piece. He loved his planes. Uh, but what I found a little odd was for all his love of planes, uh, he seemed super fascinated with the show, and maybe you know it, Air Crash Investigations. The name of the show tells you all you need to know. It's a documentary-style sort of show that looks in-depth um, at plane accidents. Now, I never fully understood why my cousin enjoyed it so much, because it's a bit like wanting to watch Occupational Hazards, really. Uh, but he was fascinated by all the reenactments, the footage, the evidence, the analysis behind these incidents. Uh, now, some of you are looking at me with some grave concern. Just to let you know, my cousin uh, is now a captain and flies commercial and has done so for 10 years without any incidents, so no big deal there. Uh, but the premise of a show like Air Crash Investigations, where in almost every case, the day would kind of begin like any other day. Uh, but something would inevitably fail, whether it was because of human error or something mechanical, meant that in some places you would have a plane in tatters now at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, that picture, I think, is a somewhat fitting illustration uh, for what we have in the character of King Saul at this point in 1 Samuel. Now, if you haven't been with us till now, and it's been a couple of weeks because we had an exciting baptism last week, uh, here's a brief recap. Uh, Israel petitioned their former leader Samuel to give them a king, uh, just like the nations around them. And Saul, by all accounts, seems like a great choice. He's fairly impressive. He's got a lot going for him. Uh, in chapter 9, uh, we learn that he's tall. He's handsome. He even has an attractive humility about him. Uh, almost sounds like a contender for a different network TV show. He also appears to have military know-how, which, when inspired by the Spirit of God, leads him to decisive victory leading and uniting Israel in the effort, which was a rare thing to actually do back in chapter 11. Things for this new king begins relatively well. And yet in chapter 13, likely several years now into his reign, we see Saul make a fateful decision, which would prove to be a fatal decision for his kingship. See, back in chapter 11, Israel, with a looming threat before them, they chose to trust in their own judgment, over and above the faithfulness of the word of God to them. And now Saul does exactly the same. With a looming threat 
of a powerful Philistine army before him. Pressure is mounting. Saul chooses to trust in his own judgment over and above the word of God promised to come to him. And the warning Samuel gives to Saul back in chapter 12 comes to pass. God's hand will now be against Saul and against his kingship. And like the beginning of a plane crash, the end has begun for Saul. From here on till the end of 1 Samuel, Saul's descent will slowly pick up momentum. So in chapter 13, we see his fall begin. This week, we will see that continue. Now, we've got two main points today. The first point, the story. Second point, what do we learn and why it matters? Yeah, the story, what do we learn, why it matters. Uh, Before we go any further, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us to come to your word expectant that it is your word. That by it, we see more of who you are because you reveal yourself through it. And so as we come to it, help us to hear it clearly. And ultimately, help us to obey it faithfully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the first point, the story. What happens in 1 Samuel 14? Again, keep your Bibles open. We've got two main scenes. Verses 1 to 23 is the first one. Verses 24 to 46 is the second one. Right at the very end of the chapter, we get some biographical details. So, at the beginning of our first scene, we meet Saul's son, Jonathan, with his armor bearer. Yeah? Now, Jonathan, we read, wants to approach a Philistine outpost, just as he did in the previous chapter. Jonathan is daring here, though, for at least a couple of reasons. One, uh, he goes with tiny numbers against tough odds. Again, it's just him and his armor bearer. He's got just a one weapon between them. Tough odds. Second, it was dangerous terrain to get to this outpost. We get some interesting topographical details in verses 4 to 5. On either side of the pass are cliffs. The names of the cliffs, Bozes, Sineh, they're revealing. Bozes means slippery. Sineh means thorny. What's the point? That no sane person would hike through here. Yeah, The terrain is slippery, it's thorny, it's treacherous. The scene would have fit nicely into a Mission Impossible film. And that's before meeting on the other side an enemy that, is, that has them outnumbered and outgunned. Yeah? So what makes Jonathan so daring? What drives him to take such risks? Well, we see it in verse 6. Come, let us go over to the outpost. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. See, why is Jonathan daring? Jonathan dares as he does because his confidence isn't in his circumstances. His confidence is in God. Yeah, his confidence isn't in his circumstances. His confidence is in God. Look at what he says again. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Right? He has sky-high convictions about God. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. His sky-high conviction produces a sky-high expectation of God, whether by many or by few. Jonathan knows that God often uses his people, big or small in number, to save. Uh, William Carey, the founder of the modern mission movement in the 18th century, would, uh, used to say his motto, his life motto was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I think a saying like that, Jonathan would nod wholeheartedly to. See, Jonathan knows that his circumstances are against him. He knows that his plan is mediocre, probably at best. But he dares because he trusts in who God is. 
Just to pause for a moment, I wonder whether we often have it the other way around. That it's because of our circumstances we have faith in God. We see we are doing well, perhaps. Or our loved ones are doing well, perhaps. Or things are tracking as we've prayed, perhaps. And because we are, they are, well, we have faith in God. Because everything around us is good, then God is God and God is good. But if and when the situation is flipped, we can be tempted to grow doubtful of God and who He is and who He says He is. And so in both cases, faith in God or lack of faith in God is because, actually, first and foremost, of our circumstances. And what we see in Jonathan is that faith dares to keep trusting in God regardless of circumstance. That what he clings to is his convictions about who God is. That his hopes and his actions come out from those convictions. See, when faith is based only in circumstances, well, it isn't faith at all. But there's also more to what Jonathan says. Yeah? Um, Because while he has supreme faith in God, in his power and what he's able to do, at the same time, Jonathan doesn't presume on that power. There's a wonderful little word, I think, that captures this. The word, maybe you noticed it, perhaps. Perhaps. He says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And he's going, God does, God can save, and perhaps God may use just the two of us talking to his armor bearer. Isn't that faith? Isn't faith, on the one hand, believing in the power and unlimited capability of God? And on the other hand, submitting to his freedom to decide what is wise and best. Faith isn't certain at all times. Faith isn't absolutely certain about what God will do in any given circumstance. To say and believe, like Jonathan, perhaps, is to truly believe that God is God, to believe that we are not, and to trust the decisions God makes as God is enough. That's the mistake that Job's friends make, isn't it? Right, if you know the story, Job's friends, speaking to Job, they don't include the word perhaps in what they say. Job's friends, for chapters upon chapters upon chapters, declare they know why Job is suffering the way that he is. They condescendingly say that Job is in the wrong, and they prescribe that he must repent. Right, there's no room for perhaps in their theology, And they hurt Job and offend God deeply with their words. What about the example of Esther? When Esther is queen, her Jewish identity hidden and a Jewish genocide is ordered, her cousin Mordecai doesn't say to her, hey, the reason that you are queen is for this moment. No. Even with that threat of genocide, Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows, in other words, perhaps, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Perhaps. To quote one commentator that faith, faith does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is its errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance and knows it has not read a transcript of the divine decrees for most situations. perhaps is part of Jonathan's theology, and I suspect perhaps ought to be part of our theology also. Now let's come back to the story. So Jonathan is hustling, 
while entrusting the situation to God. Meanwhile, what's Saul doing? Uh, well, he's busy staying in verse 2, or could be translated sitting. Right? He's sitting under the shade of a pomegranate tree far away from the action. He's protected by what's left of his army and a priest named Ahijah. Now, we might go, hey, Saul's not doing too badly. He's got a priest, at least, with him. Now, that might be true until we see in verse 3 that Ahijah is a nephew of Ichabod, the fellow in chapter 4 who's given the name because God's glory has left Israel, it's departed Israel. Uh, this priest is in the family line of Phineas, the corrupt priest that God condemns, he and his brother, to death earlier in the book. And he comes from the family line, the son of Eli, whose family line God curses. So it's not exactly a great company to be with. But for Saul, it is fitting company, isn't it? Because the king God has departed from is surrounded by a priest whose God's glory has also departed from. And so at this point, Saul is doing a whole lot of nothing, and in many ways, surrounded by a whole lot of nothing. Now, as Jonathan and his armor-bearer approach the army in verse 8, Jonathan shares a sign about, uh, 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 to know whether God is green-lighting their surprise attack. If the enemy invites them up, well, time to go. If they don't, let's turn back. We don't know why those are the signs, but they go with it. Uh, when the enemy sees them, verse 11, they see no threat, obviously. They're probably surprised, if anything. So they joke up like they're like moles popping their heads out of the ground. Uh, they dare them to come up, and then they go back to their business. And that's all Jonathan needs to hear. With just a weapon, with one weapon between them, crawling up the terrain using their hands and feet, we're at verse 13 now, they climb this steep and slippery and thorny bank before launching their attack. Quickly, verse 15, 24. And the attack causes widespread panic across the whole army. God even sends an earthquake, confirming that he's behind Jonathan's success. Last chapter, we saw the Israelites and the, and the troops described as quaking with fear against their foe. But now it is the foe in complete fear, having experienced a quake from God. Right? You can imagine the Philistines running around like headless chooks with the suddenness of everything. Now, the panic doesn't go unnoticed at King Saul's camp. Some lookouts report that the enemy were, verse 16, melting away in all directions. It's great language, isn't it? Right? Melting away. The Philistine army that seemed once so fearsome, so solid, so unmovable, were now in such a panic state, it was just that they had just melted away. But Saul is clueless. He still doesn't even know that his son Jonathan has left camp. And so over the next few verses, I think we see just how out of touch Saul is. He decides, verse 17, out of all the things he could have done, he marks the roll. Kind of weird. Then in verse 18, he calls his priest Ahijah to bring the Ark of the Covenant, forgetting that Israel, only in recent history, brought the Ark in a previous fight against the Philistines, and they got absolutely pummeled. Not a great strategy. Then verse 19, hearing the commotion among the Philistine army get louder and louder, Saul suddenly veers course. He tells his priest to back off, and he sends a weaponless army to fight a battle. Right, the point is, King Saul is clueless. Now, as we reach the battle, though, what do Saul and the army see? Yeah? Verse 20, what do they see? They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. And so imagine the scene, right? You've got these terrified soldiers going into battle. They've got no weapon. They see the situation, and you can imagine them shouting, Hey, we don't even need weapons. They're killing each other. Let's just pick up their weapons of the dead, and let's just chase after them. 
Right? Even those that previously abandoned the fight reinforced the ranks, seeing them flee in verse 21 to 22, and they together chased the Philistines down. I mean, what deliverance! Israel barely needed to do a thing. Was it because Saul suddenly changed course in, of action? Was it because of Jonathan's daring escapade? No, the writer's quick to tell us who brought the victory. Verse 23. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond beth Now sadly, as wonderful of a victory as this is, we can't celebrate too quickly because this day is a day of two halves. Now we've got the triumph and victory leading up to verse 23. And yet in verse 24, we see on that very day, the Israelites were in distress. See, as sweet as a victory as this was, by the end of the day, it all turned sour. Why? As we move to our second scene, the flashback in verse 24 introduces for us some very important background. Now, the Israelites, we read in verse 24, were in distress or hard-pressed that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Now, the word for distress in verse 24 is the same word as hard-pressed in chapter 13. So when Israel's army was so hard-pressed against the Philistine army's might that 80% of the army hid or scattered, Israel now feels a similar sort of distress again. Not because of the army that they're against, but because of their king. Because Saul, in a war, bound his army to vow to abstain from food. Now, this idea isn't some new wartime strategy. A king may well have wanted his army lean and mean for battle. But there is something about Saul's oath that seems far too concerned about Saul and far too unconcerned about God. Notice what he says again. Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes before what? I have avenged myself on my enemies. There's a whole lot of me, me, and me in there, isn't there? Completely different to Jonathan's words earlier. With that background, let's pick it up from verse 25. So Jonathan rejoins Israel's army after his mission. While walking along in the woods, they see some honey on the ground. Oozing amount of honey. But because, <clears throat> sorry, because of the oath, the, Philist- the soldiers don't dare touch it. Jonathan, knowing nothing about the oath, because he was away from camp, he naturally goes straight for it. Verse 27, he dips his staff into the honeycomb, he tastes it, and immediately we read, his eyes brighten. His strength is renewed. The soldiers would have been staring at him, googly-eyed and drooling like one of those KFC ads. Uh, one of them, verse 28, eventually lets Jonathan in on the news. Notice his response. <coughs> Sorry, my father made country, trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been greater? See, Jonathan sees, in other words, the foolishness of his father's words. There's at least a few reasons why Saul's words caused trouble for the country. His soldiers, number one, were faint. We see that at the end of verse 27. The oath meant that his army went to battle foolishly sapped of energy and strength. 
which means, too, they weren't able to devastate the Philistines as completely as they could have. That's why Jonathan says, in bold at the bottom, would not the slaughter have been greater? Keep in mind, Samuel told Saul back in chapter 10, hey, one of your main tasks as king was to defeat the Philistines. And so not only does Saul have no idea what's going on, his very oath actually spares the very enemy God instructs him to defeat. The victory, while incredible, was stunted from what it could have been. But we also see a third reason as we continue with the story. You see, verse 31, the soldiers, after fighting and chasing the Philistines all day on empty stomachs, they're famished. They're famished. Now, at the very moment the sun goes down, when the oath is complete, like a mad rush of students at the final bell of a school year, the army pounce in a frenzy on the spoils of the plunder. The the description in verse 32, if you look at it, it's graphic. They tear into the cattle, calves and sheep, butchering them into the ground, eating the meat with the blood still in it. And by doing so, they break a command of God in the process. In Leviticus 17, don't turn to it, we learn a creature's blood must be drained before eating it. Not for any trivial reason, but because an animal's blood was sacrificed and atoned for human sin. That meant blood was sacred. It, couldn't, it shouldn't be eaten. The blood of an animal symbolized life, and life belongs to God. And so Saul's rash command impoverished his soldiers to the point that they broke God's command without any thought. Their commitment to a man-made command destroyed their ability to obey a divine command. Because man-made commandments can be dangerous, can't they? Man-made commandments, even well-intended ones, by the way, can actually function to lead people away from God's given commands. People in Jesus' day did the exact same thing. The Pharisees, so obsessed with obeying the Sabbath, they added extra rules to it. Those rules destroyed the intent of the Sabbath. A day from God given as a gift to repair, to rest, to restore. But people, they were just so burdened by these extra rules. Like One of them said that you could not carry a load heavier uh, than a dried fig. How do you weigh a dried fig? It's just, it's just silly, right? So it's little wonder how they found it difficult to enjoy the blessing God intended the Sabbath to be because they were so obsessed with keeping all these extra rules. Do we have man-made rules, I wonder, that keep people away from obeying the clear commands of God? I suspect we still do. Last week, I was, read a story of a missionary family that served in a place where um, peanut butter was difficult to obtain. So this family arranged for friends back home to post peanut butter so they could still enjoy it. But they soon discovered that others serving in that same country considered peanut butter, or abstaining from peanut butter, a mark of spirituality. It was their cross to bear, apparently. Now, this family didn't flaunt around their peanut butter. They didn't kind of just go, here's my craft crunchy peanut butter. Look at me enjoy it as I dip my cracker into it or something. No, they, they enjoyed it in the privacy of their home. But the pressure and criticism from their fellow missionaries, their team intensified to such a degree that the family actually eventually left the country cynical and disillusioned. Because of peanut butter. Sad, isn't it? Perhaps closer to home, not too long ago, I had a conversation with someone who, while still a believer, 
uh, left her church. Uh, She had been seconded overseas by work, which members of her church were already not too happy that she accepted. But when she came back, the ongoing conversations and judgments that she received about her conviction to remain unmarried, uh, her enjoyment of things like a good bottle of wine, turned her off from staying. Largely due to the active and passive criticisms accumulated from man-made rules, she is now indefinitely out of fellowship with God's people. Disappointing, isn't it? Actually, a better word for it might be ugly. Because when man-made rules get in the way of God's good commands for us, well, the outcome is always ugly. It's true for these examples. It's certainly true in Saul's case. Now, the rest of our passage sadly doesn't get much better. In verses 33 to 35, Saul, overlooking that he was the one who caused his men to sin, he ironically becomes super concerned that they have broken God's command. He builds his very first altar to God. Verse 36, he's feeling good, so he attempts to continue the effort against the Philistines. Now, the soldiers don't give him a too, enthusi- too much of an enthusiastic response, and so his shell of a priest nudges that, hey, it might be a good thing to inquire of God before you boldly dash forward. Uh, Saul finally inquires of God. He gets no answer, no surprise there. And so he launches an investigation, verse 38, because he's probably thinking, surely the reason God refuses to answer me must be the sin of someone else in this camp. Next bit is a little odd. Saul uses two objects from the priest's breastplate, the Urim and the Tumen, which were often used to receive guidance from God. We don't know exactly how that works, but they cast lots to try to find the culprit. Ironically, this is a similar process to how God sets Saul apart as king, but now he's pretty much abusing that process to whittle down who's at fault. Nobody's very keen about this. In verse 39, no one says a word to Saul's request. No one wants to dob Jonathan in for eating honey. So you've got God's Silent, now you've got the people silent. And so God and the people have now deserted Saul. Eventually, the lot singles out Jonathan as the one at fault. Now, it's all absurd, it's comical in a tragic sort of way. Because when Saul is the one who causes these issues, Jonathan is the one that's blamed. Right? Even Jonathan seems sarcastic to Saul's questioning. Verse 43, what's he say? I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. It's like he's saying, I ate some honey, it only helped, but I guess that was a horrible thing to do and worthy of a death penalty. Go ahead, Dad. Saul, clearly on a roll, he goes and makes another vow. Verse 44, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But Saul is so off kilter, he believes God would want him to put Jonathan now to death. Thankfully, the people finally speak up and finally step in. Verse 45, they say, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. The people know that God used Jonathan to bring this victory and deliverance. They know Saul has done very little except be passive and bring misery. And so Jonathan, in bold, verse 45, is ransomed. He's rescued by the people from near death at the hands of his father. Now, perhaps finally realizing that he's lost the people's hearts, Saul backs off completely. And so the Philistines are again spared. Verse 46, and they return back to their land. 
Now, the Philistines never quite disappear from Saul's life. We read at the very end of our chapter in verse 52 that all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. See, Saul ultimately failed to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines, and it would actually be the Philistines at the very end of 1 Samuel chasing him now. And he and Jonathan would die that same day. It's just tragic. So what do we learn from all of this? And why does it matter? Let's move to our second point to try and tie this all together. Okay? Now, if we take a wider view of 1 Samuel chapter 14, I think we see over and over again Jonathan and Saul being compared side by side. In fact, um, if we look from chapter 13, that's already been the case. On the screen, if you look downwards at each column... Um, Dale Ralph Davies, an Old Testament commentator, points out that these two chapters, chapters 13 and 14, follow a similar pattern in three back-to-back episodes. So across the two chapters, the success and wisdom of Jonathan, after a brief look at the people of Israel, gets quickly compared to the failure and folly of Saul before going back to Israel again. And it repeats itself two more times over the two chapters. And so the the point is, as as you read chapter 13 and 14, as you see these three back-to-back episodes, Jonathan is the one that's lifted up. Jonathan is a man of tremendous faith. He commits himself to God. He acts. He initiates. He clearly can lead. He's got the people's hearts. He's got all the goods, in other words, to be an amazing king. If not now, then one day in the future. Just think about it, right? What if Jonathan were king rather than Saul? What if Jonathan was the one who led the people of God from the very beginning, rather than his father? How much difference could that have made? See, in context, it makes chapter 14 really all the more tragic. Because that opportunity, we learn, we read, that will never present itself. See, not only will Saul remain king, but because of his disobedience, kingship will now go to another family line, a line that God will choose. See, the closest Jonathan will get to being king, though he deserves it, is to be the son of one and then to eventually be the best friend of the next one. It's not the type of story we typically like to hear, is it? We like seeing the overlooked reach their potential. We like seeing good character people do well. We want to see people who God loves succeed. I mean, isn't that that the ending we want? Don't we think they just deserve that? It can even make us question God, right? God, why must Jonathan's opportunity be wrecked by his father? God, why why won't you give Jonathan his chance? Thankfully, I think the passage provides an answer for us. It comes indirectly, though, um, from what seems to be a curious misfit of verses at the end of the chapter. We won't read it, uh, but verses 47 to 48 describe Saul as his conquering, mighty militarily able king. He fights, he punishes, he defeats the enemies of Israel left, right, and center. And then from verses 49 to 51, we get a summary of who's in Saul's family. His sons, his daughters, his wife, his uncle, his father. And so you've got these four verses right at the end of the chapter. It's kind of out of place. Because in a chapter that's all about the failures of Saul, here, in a few sentences at least, Saul's kingship is painted so positively, so wonderfully. Right, you've, got his, you've got his military prowess. We meet the royal family. Right, why, how are we to read this at the end of our chapter? 
I suspect these details are here to show that even though the perspective of history shows us that Saul was a successful and gifted first king, who had everything you would want as the king of the ancient world, on the battleground and his family, when it came to what ultimately counted in life, he's standing with God, he failed. And while Jonathan never got a shot to be king, when it came to the battleground of the heart, when it came to his standing with God, where it truly counted, he shone. See, perhaps unlike us, Jonathan wouldn't have seen himself as a tragic figure. Because Jonathan would have known that the kingdom did not belong to his father. It didn't belong to him. It belonged to God. And the kingdom was not his to have or to rule, but to serve. And Jonathan was serving and continued to serve in that kingdom brilliantly. 1 Samuel 14, I think, corrects our 21st century self-fulfillment is a right mentality. It challenges the message that as long as we work hard and go after what we want, we deserve to have it. It challenges the idea ingrained into us that our circumstances ought to come out right, the way we define right to be. And not to have that fulfilled, therefore, is somehow tragic. The message, that message is in the very air we breathe. And yet Saul's counterexample and Jonathan's positive example, they demonstrate that outward accolades and successes in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of history usually mean very little when it comes to what ultimately counts. One of the great delights of coming today was seeing all the little kids kind of pop up. I hope that as a church, that as you pray for these young ones, the prayer isn't that they will be written into man's fading books of history, but that they would be written in God's eternal book of life. Because that's what ultimately counts. How will we see and live the way Jonathan does? Because it's difficult to swim against the tide of culture, isn't it? Is it just to be more like Jonathan, to do as Jonathan does, to dare as Jonathan dares? Maybe a little. But even if we did, I suspect that on its own, it wouldn't last very long. You know, what will truly transform us from the inside out to see and live the way Jonathan does? I think for that, we need to look beyond Jonathan to a greater Jonathan. You see, centuries later, we will see another faithful son who lived by faith and in step with God who would take the initiative to fight not the seemingly undefeatable Philistines, but the previously undefeatable sin and death. He deserved far more than simply being king. He rightly deserved to be worshipped. But he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Instead, like Saul to Jonathan, his people condemned him to die. But unlike Jonathan, nobody ransomed him from his situation. Because ultimately, this king did not want to be ransomed. Because this king did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, to close the example of Jonathan, yeah, that's helpful. But that'll only go so far. We need Jesus, the greater Jonathan. We need Jesus, whose life and death from outward appearances seems tragic. But in reality, on the cross, he achieved a far greater victory in a far more unlikely battle than anything Jonathan would ever face. 
Because without him, the only thing the Bible says that we deserved was actually what? A life cut off from all that is good. And the good God whose very presence makes it good. We need Jesus because in giving his life as a ransom for many to die for those who did not deserve it means access now to a life being known and loved by this otherworldly love. And that matters far more than anyone, anything, and any little K kingdom this world has to offer. Friends, he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I'll invite the band up as we respond in song.